0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. On Memorial Day, stories of Coloradans who served in extraordinary conditions, like Army combat medic Joe Maris of
1: Lamar. He was treating that man when he was shot in the head. A bullet was lodged in his brain, and he nevertheless went on to treat at least two, possibly four more soldiers before he collapsed on the battlefield. A Pueblo
0: author collects these heroic accounts state by state in a new book series. Then how fallen U.S. service members came to be buried in American cemeteries
2: overseas. They're located right on the ground where the war went through, right? If you go to Normandy, I mean, you are on the top of the bluffs of Omaha Beach. Some of the men buried there didn't just figuratively die to free that land. They literally died to free that specific land.
0: A Boulder historian keeps their memory alive. My
1: gift to CPR was matched by my employer.
2: We support CPR with a business reporting grant.
1: I'm a network partner and a member of the Legacy Circle. I support Colorado Public
3: Radio by giving stock.
2: Our foundation proudly supports CPR's efforts.
1: We will distribute residual assets tax-free to CPR. My husband and I are Colorado Public Radio leadership partners. Explore all ways to give and make your gift on the support page at CPR.org.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. We'll spend some of this Memorial Day with a writer who's collected the stories of dozens of Coloradans whose military service is beyond belief. In fact, the book's called Beyond Belief, True Stories of Colorado Heroes That Defy Comprehension. Doug Sterner lives in Pueblo. He joined me from our studios in Colorado Springs. Doug,
1: thank you for being with us. Well, thank you for having me on today.
0: I'd like to start with the brothers Wendell and Claude Ferdig of La Junta. Uh, maybe Wendell first. What did he do?
1: Wendell has always been one of my favorite heroes. Uh, he was born and raised in La Junta, graduated from Colorado School of Mines. He was sent to the Pacific as an engineer, as a re- Army reservist. He was activated when it looked like war with Japan was imminent and his family was sent back home to La When the Philippine Islands surrendered on May 6, 1942 with the fall of Corregidor, uh, he was on Mindanao. And rather than surrender, he went into the mountains of Mindanao to escape and evade the Japanese. And this is a pretty remote island, right? Yes, it's uh, the second largest island in the Philippine Islands, but it's far south, uh, some distance from where the main action was on the big island of Luzon. So uh, why is he one of your favorite heroes? Well, probably for two reasons. Number one, because he's an almost forgotten hero. Uh, Very few people in La Junta even know the name, although his father was quite prominent in the city. Secondarily, because he did the most audacious things. He escaped into the mountains of Mindanao, There he began assembling a force of Philippine guerrillas to attack and harass the Japanese operations on the island. The force grew so large, he thought, well, as a colonel, I should not be commanding a force this large. And he actually promoted himself to brigadier general. The Japanese certainly wanted him. He had a major price on his head. They did many things to try and capture or kill Wendell Ferdig. He was awarded the Distinguished Service Cross, the Army's second highest award. And his story is just so compelling that Hollywood has talked for years about doing the story huh. of him. And it is amazing to me that his brother, Wendell's brother Claude, has a similar story, Doug. Yes, I did not realize this until I started doing the book. His brother, Claude Ferdig, also from La Hanta, married a girl from La Junta, graduated from Colorado School of Mines, <laughs> and he was sent to Panay Island in the Philippine Islands. And there, at the time of the surrender, his wife fled to a small village where she was sheltered by a group of 16 Baptist missionaries, and Claude went into the mountains and also began building a guerrilla force to fight the Japanese. At one point, the Japanese were trying to get him as much as they were trying to get his brother. They sent a patrol of 400 Japanese to the town where the 16 Baptist missionaries were, ordering them to turn over Claude's wife. They refused. She escaped out the back way. The Japanese killed all 16 missionaries and their children. She was alone in the jungle, eight and a half months pregnant, gave birth to their daughter, under a banana tree, and when I did the story, I found a beautiful picture in a newspaper of their daughter back in La Junta after Claude was able to get her out of the Philippine Islands two months later on an American submarine.
0: The remarkable story of the Furtick brothers, Um, indeed positively cinematic. And do you have a sense, Doug, whether the brothers knew the other was
1: doing something similar? No, they had no contact with each other. Uh, It was actually Claude who uh, was versed in electronics that was able to make the first communication to Australia to let General Douglas MacArthur know that there was a Philippine guerrilla force there. There
0: are dozens of stories in the book. You wrote some of them and had other writers do some of the lifting as well. Some of the heroes earned medals and citations. Some were pioneers like Carol Mutter, who grew up in Greeley, became the first, I think, female lieutenant general in the Marine Corps. Do you find a common thread, something that, like, some or all of these heroes, as you call them, had in common?
1: Beyond their dedication to duty and their patriotism to the United States and their love for their state of Colorado— That's the thing that I love about them most is that there is no common theme. They are very diverse. They range from high school dropouts to college graduates, from uh, guys who came from rich families to the very poorest, from tall to short, athletic to skinny and and not too athletic. (laughs) And that's that's the value of the versatility of our heroes because in these heroes, Every young boy, every young girl can find one that they can identify with and say, this man, this woman was just like me, came from a background just like me. And when the chips were down, they stood up to the challenge and did something incredible. And you know what? Maybe I can do the same thing if I'm ever called on to do so. Uh
0: Yeah, I think if I sense a theme reading the book, it is that many of the heroes you profile had military experience in their family. So at least it was part of the conversation. At least it was part
1: of the the heritage, for lack of a better word. Do you think, do you think that's true? Military service is often a familial thing. It's passed down from generation to generation. Some of the profiled heroes in the book were, grew up under fathers that had served in World War I or the Spanish American War. Their siblings served. Uh, the story of the Mares brothers is in there. All six brothers served in World War II. Oh, yes.
0: We'll talk about the Mares brothers. But, you know, let me hearken back to Carol Mutter for a minute. Again, first woman to become a three star general in the Marine Corps. She grew up in northern Colorado. Her husband was also a Marine. How did they juggle those careers? It's kind of like a little give and take, isn't it?
1: Well, it was more give because they were a very, very solid couple. Uh, At first, her husband outranked her. That didn't matter. She focused on his career. He retired as a colonel. And then he focused on her career, and she retired as a lieutenant general. There was no competition there. They were just very solidly supporting each other in their individual careers and taking pride in what the other accomplished. Hmm. Okay, to the Mara's family,
0: uh, let's focus perhaps on Joe. Uh, He has an eighth-grade education when he enlists. He becomes a combat medic in World War II. His platoon is on Omaha Beach on D-Day. And a few days later, they were uh, called out to a battle, right?
1: Yes, and there were several wounded Joe Maris went out to treat one of the wounded as his comrades urged him not to go because they felt he would be killed uh, by the severe fire that was ongoing. He was treating that man when he was shot in the head. A bullet was lodged in his brain, and he nevertheless went on to treat at least two, possibly four more soldiers before he collapsed on the battlefield.
2: Whoa. Um...
1: (laughs) That's why we call it Beyond Belief.
0: Yeah. But I I wonder if it's truly beyond your belief and comprehension, Doug Sterner, because you're a veteran as well. You served in Vietnam, didn't you?
1: Yes, I did two tours in Vietnam. Uh, I'm one of those rare military historians who is a veteran. It seems, by and large, the vast majority of military historians are civilians, and I appreciate them for their interest and for preserving these stories But I think uh, having served myself, it gives me a distinct advantage in writing these stories.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Uh, I mean, does it give you insight into how someone like
1: Joe Mares does what he does? To some degree, it does, yes, because uh, I was never in a position like that. I always wondered, what would I do under those conditions? And when I see a man like Joe Mares, it gives me hope that I would have done the same had I been in that position.
0: I guess I'd like to go to the first story in the book. We're doing this out of order. Um, This first story is a bit more contemporary. It's about Randy Haba, who grew up in Stratton in eastern Colorado. He got interested in search and rescue in high school. Uh, But the twist is a guy from a landlocked state joins the Coast Guard and ends up as a search and rescue swimmer. His exploits come with Hurricane Sandy, which left a path of destruction from the Caribbean to Canada in 2012. And Haba gets involved when a ship sinks in the Atlantic, and he has to rescue crew members. Tell us what conditions were
1: like that night. Well, the ship that sank was the bounty, the wooden replica that was created for the movie Mutiny on the Bounty. It began sinking during Hurricane Sandy, and the Coast Guard became aware they were hoping that the ship would stay afloat until daylight, and then the crew could be evacuated. Uh, the worst happened: the ship sank, and in the, about two o'clock in the morning, uh, the crew had to take to the water. Randy Haba was deployed by helicopter, and and I salute the the rest of the crew of that helicopter as well as Randy Haba, who yeah. were great heroes fighting hurricane-force winds. And they dropped Randy alone into the ocean, 90 miles off Cape Hatteras, in 30-foot seas to rescue the survivors. And it was still dark. It was early morning darkness. He was hooked to a cable, and they lowered the cable. Uh, the man whose job it was to lower him said the winds were so bad that when he went out the door of the helicopter, he couldn't see him because the wind pushed him backwards. Oh. And uh, they had to make some adjustments. They got him into the water. For the first rescue, he remained attached to that cable until he finally reached uh, the one man in the water. And then together, they were hoisted up into the helicopter. Then they went to a life raft that contained a number of people in it. Mm -hmm. And Randy Haba would unhook from the helicopter, swim the distance in 30-foot waves that were just buffeting him. He said it was like being in a washing machine on agitation cycle to uh, take one person at a time out of the raft... Swim them back to where they could be hoisted into the helicopter. And then he would go back for another one. He was in the water for almost two hours fighting those conditions. Uh, The man was just a healthy specimen for absolute sure (laughs) and courageous, (laughs) courageous, courageous. And I love it because, number one, most people forget that the Coast Guard is a branch of military service. We think of Mm -hmm. Army, Navy, Marine Corps, and Air Force. Uh, But the Coast Guard is America's oldest— continuous sea service. I
0: also do really appreciate your focus on women in the military. Uh, There are more women who are serving these days uh, than I think at any time in our history. But it is also true that their service goes way, way back.
1: It goes all the way back to the American Revolution. Uh, There was a young woman who enlisted in the Army, under the assumed name of Robert Shirtleaf, she dressed as a man. Everyone thought she was one of their male counterparts until she was wounded three times and the third time required uh, surgery, and the surgeon discovered that uh, Robert Shirtleaf was not really Robert Shirtleaf. Dr. Mary Edwards Walker in, moral, uh, in the Civil War became the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor. She was also a prisoner of war of the Confederate Army and served as a spy. Mm. So women have a great history of military service. You do tell the story of a
0: combat nurse in World War II named Mary Louise Hawkins. The the incident that led to her medal is, again, like right out of a movie. Tell us what happened.
1: Well, she was a flight nurse, which was uh, attached to evacuation aircraft that would fly into the combat zones, load up the most critically wounded, and fly them back to a hospital. And she was trained to treat them en route so that they would arrive in good condition for surgery. She had 55 people on the ship that she picked up, and they were headed back to the hospital at Guadalcanal in 1944. By that time, Guadalcanal had been secured. Mm -hmm. The aircraft ran out of fuel in a storm, and had to crash land on a smile island distant from Gada Canal. With all of in those the crash...
0: injured folks on board.
1: Exactly. Yeah. She and one crewman managed to evacuate everyone out of the aircraft. One of them was a Marine who, when the aircraft crashed in the jungle, one of the propellers came loose and tore through the fuselage and severed his throat. And he was choking on his own blood. She managed to create... An emergency tracheotomy, taking the tube on a May West life jacket that was used to blow air in to inflate the life jacket. She cut the tube off, put it down his throat as a makeshift uh, means of doing a tracheotomy, tracheotomy. in the jungle. Uh, she kept them alive overnight. They were rescued the following day by a ship that anchored just off the shore and sent a small boat to pick him up. Uh, Mary Hawkins was the last one to uh, be evacuated, and she actually had to swim the last distance to the ship when the the boat uh, swamped and sank, and her all 55 of her patients received hospital treatment and survived, thanks to her effort, and she became one of only 24 women in history to be awarded the Distinguished Flying Cross. You're telling me
0: the gentleman that was hit by the propeller, he survived?
1: He survived, thanks to the ingenuity of a a flight nurse in the jungle with no instruments. Well, you know, this is remarkable as well, because this book, Beyond
0: Belief, is focused on Colorado, just like heroes who served from this state. And you have a plan to write a book like this for every single
1: state. The book turned out so well. And I have a tendency of opening my big mouth and sticking my foot in it. I said, uh, (laughs) if I live long enough, I'm going to do one book for each state. I started three weeks ago after the Colorado book came out on my home state of Montana. And I am now 400 pages into that book and planning to release it on July 4th.
0: Well, I thank you for your time and also your service. Thanks for being with us, Doug. Well, thank you. Military historian Doug Sterner lives in Pueblo. His book is Beyond Belief, True Stories of Colorado Heroes that Defy Comprehension. When we come back, how American service members came to be buried in U.S. cemeteries overseas. And we'll meet a father and son on a mission to make sure they're not forgotten. This is Colorado Matters on Memorial Day from CPR News. The Southwest United States has been in a drought for more than 20 years. A big problem for the Colorado River and the people who use it. Parched, the new podcast from
4: CPR News, is about people who rely on the river that shape the West and have ideas to save it.
1: We cannot just allow nature to
3: disappear.
0: Find Parched wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Alpine Bank. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. On this Memorial Day, we'll reshare now the story of fallen service members who are buried abroad. The U.S. government has 26 foreign cemeteries, mostly in Europe, but also in Mexico, the Philippines, and Panama. And by Pete Chandler's count, about 2,000 Coloradans are interred in these places, predominantly from World Wars I and II. Chandler is an educator in Boulder. And a few years ago, he took his son, Ty, to France, home to the largest of these cemeteries. Their trip turned out to be the start of a much longer journey to connect Coloradans to the fallen. Pete, Ty, thank you for being with us.
3: Thanks for thank having you. us.
0: Uh, Pete, tell me about the timing of this trip in 2018. It coincided with an important anniversary.
3: Yes, we considered going over to, to France because it was the centenary commemoration of the armistice of the First World War. The end of World War One. End I. of World War One, And a hundred years later, I figured that if I'm going to go to the Western Front and and to witness uh, this commemoration, that I really had to make it happen. And I dragged Ty out of school for 10 days, and we went over there, and the, the last part of our trip was being in Paris, a rainy Paris, for the ceremony itself. Where was that in Paris? That was right in the at the Arc de Triomphe.
0: Yo Yo Ma played. Yes. Ty, what stands out to you from that day in Paris?
5: I mean as my dad said, the rainy day um, was definitely memorable. Watching all the world leaders arrive, it was a cool day to be in Paris, for sure.
0: So while in France, the two of you traveled to meuse Cemetery, northeast of Paris. This is a cemetery uh, with American war dead. What compelled you to go there,
3: Pete? The argonne Cemetery I had been to once before, and I just remember it being an incredible location and the experience of being at the cemetery,
5: and I thought that would be something that Ty would appreciate. Yeah, it was an amazing experience. Just the scale of the cemetery, us being the only, pretty much the only ones there, walking through the thousands of white crosses was an experience in itself.
0: When you say scale, it's representing the the death toll.
5: Yeah. Yeah. And it's not something you understand until you walk through, looking at the names and where they're from. And you see Colorado, Texas, and from all over the United States.
0: It's here that the seed is planted for what becomes the Bringing Them Home Project. Um, this is not a literal bringing home. What's your mission piece?
3: The mission is really to honor people who are servicemen and women who are buried abroad, who serve this country, died for the country, and for whatever reason are were never brought home. And who might be lost to history. And it's to tell their stories, to help Americans understand that these cemeteries exist.
0: Mm. You've brought a few stories home for us. Uh, Shall we start with World War I veteran
3: and poet Charles Bliss? Yeah, Charles Bliss was a Boulder High graduate, and he went to CU and then CU Law School and... After law school, he took a job in Cortez, Colorado, where he would fairly regularly, uh, according to his sister, he would walk about 10 miles to the Mesa Verde ruins, where he was just fascinated by the ruins. And he would walk amongst the, the rooms there, and it had just opened up pretty much. And he wrote a lot of poetry. It was very flowery, kind of romantic poetry. He was quite anti-war at the time, mm. apparently, but he decided later that he would enlist and he eventually uh, made his way to, to France and he wrote a tremendous letter to his uncle Byron about his experiences and the contrast between the poetry from Colorado and his description of the, of the battle sites and the, the carnage that he experienced is quite striking. Hmm. And he died about a month before the armistice, actually.
0: Oh, my goodness. So close to the end of World War mm-hmm. I. You don't have any poetry from Charles Bliss to read us, do you? Or any of his writing? Absolutely. Okay.
3: So I, I've got two pieces. One is, is from his time when he was on the Western Slope. And it's an example of his romantic poetry, I, I think.
0: Oh, good. So is this about Cortez?
3: This is about the area around Cortez. Okay. Yes. Climbing all day in the mountains, through the pine and spruce, rolling rocks from mountaintops that set the echoes loose, fishing in crystal streamlets, neath the quaking asp, who would give a life like this for weary office task?
0: <laughs> wow, that sounds very modern to me, all these people who in the pandemic are reassessing work-life balance.
3: Yes, But then I have a a piece from his letter to his Uncle Byron describing his experience on the front. And this was right before he he was killed.
0: I have a feeling this is going to show the contrast you
3: were talking about. Yes. Some of the towns I have passed through still have rooms and portions of roofs left, but not so here. They are literally leveled to the ground. The earth is pitted with shell holes and strewn with barbed wire entanglements. Many thick woods have been shelled till almost nothing but brush remains growing. Big oaks are snapped off by shells and the ends of limbs shot off. Usually the hardest thing is at night, but today it is rather lively. We often march at night. We slop along through the mud and rain, and it is hard on men and beasts. The other night a horse fell, and we got to him and found him lying on the ground. He staggered to his feet and fell at the side of the road. We shot him and put in another horse, caused a stop of perhaps five minutes. I cannot imagine what caused him to break over in such a fashion.
0: And he is a name that you saw at Muzargon
3: or what? Actually, I did not see his name there. The person that I did see was a man named Friend Wright, and he's identified just from being from Colorado. When I was standing at his his gravesite, I wondered... where in Colorado is he from? Hmm. Could it be that he's from Boulder? And so when I came back, I I did some research at the the Carnegie Library and the, at the courthouse in, in Boulder and found the names of the servicemen who lost their lives in the war. And then I went to the ABMC website.
0: This is the American Battle Monuments Commission. We'll hear from them in just a bit, by the way.
3: Then compared or put in those names that I found from the the courthouse and found that there were nine Boulder County men who lost their lives and are buried in France. And Charles Bliss is one of those. One of those nine.
0: As was Friend Wright, who's just from outside of Lyons. You also wanted to highlight a man named Emil Lind.
3: Emil Lind.
0: Why? What what stands out to you about him?
3: What strikes me about his story is that he emigrated to Colorado from Sweden when he was six with his family, his mother and two sisters, and father, and they settled in the the tiny town of Sunset, Colorado. That some of your listeners might have been to.
0: Gosh, I'm embarrassed. It's west of Boulder, it's right, of Boulder. right on the
3: Switzerland Trail. Okay. And it was a small town that where the railroad went through. The railroad served mines and tourists that were going on the Switzerland Trail. And Emil was a was an engineer for the railroad. And he also played the violin and he played in the in the local hotel that no longer exists. I mean, Sunset is basically a ghost town at the end of Four Mile Canyon. And he bought a house eventually in Boulder for, I think it was $600 in the middle of Boulder, which is basically what it goes for now, I think. (laughs) And before he went off to France, he signed that house over to his mother. I think he had a very good idea that it was possible that he would not return.
0: Oh, goodness. And what do you know about his time in France and how he meets his demise?
3: I don't know much about it. I believe he was a a messenger that was riding a a, a motorcycle between lines or uh, just communicating between regiments, if you will. And he was killed by by hitting a a landmine.
0: And obviously you're trying to get clearer and clearer pictures of these lives. Ty, has your dad made a a history buff of you? (laughs) Is this something you might pursue Uh, more than as an amateur or what?
5: Yes, for sure. Having a grandfather and father who are um, historians definitely makes me interested in the subject. And seeing all these sites and traveling has definitely got me interested in history for sure.
0: Pete, what more do you hope to learn? Where do you want to take this project next?
3: Yes. So I started small with the nine from Boulder County, but I really see the value and the possibilities of of making this a bigger project and involving schools and, and students who could do research on a particular name.
0: We're going to hear a story, in fact, about how a student actually helped the U.S. government identify some remains.
3: Yes, incredible.
0: So there's real power here of exploration and discovery. Tremendous power. And
3: I I used to be, I was a history teacher for a number of years, and I think I I was a little frustrated with the teaching of history being kind of about the battles or about the strategy and and the great leaders. And what struck me about being in the Meuse-Argonne Cemetery is that all of these white crosses represent stories of everyday men who decided to serve the country and to sacrifice their lives. And they all have very interesting stories. And I've only looked into a few. And just the few, I I have found some very different stories, but fascinating. Do you ever run across women? Yes. uh, Occasionally. From the First World War where I started and uh, Hattie Riefel is one woman who served as a nurse in London and died, and she is buried in uh, the American Cemetery there.
6: Huh.
0: Pete Chandler of Boulder and his son Ty speaking with me last May. Pete and Ty stuck around... help me interview historian ben brands of the american battle monuments commission in washington dc hi ben
2: hello thanks for having me
0: why are there foreign american veteran cemeteries
2: so the american battle monuments commission's cemeteries date to kind of the massive death of world war one and what we see happen after world war one is that there's kind of two simultaneous questions that america has to answer the first is How do we commemorate this first, you know, major overseas war that sees uh, over a hundred thousand killed? And the second is, you know, what do we do with the physical remains of those Americans who died in Europe? And so in 1923, the Congress creates the American Battle Monuments Commission uh, with the mission of establishing a series of monuments across Europe to honor the achievements of the American Expeditionary Forces that fought the war. Simultaneously, Uh, The War Department is establishing some overseas cemeteries uh, from the war dead, uh, and Congress quickly gives ABMC the mission as well to design and build non-sectarian chapels at those cemeteries. Uh, And so what you end up having happen is a series of monuments. You have 11 monuments uh, and two markers, and then the eight permanent cemeteries.
0: And why wouldn't the inclination have been to bring those remains home?
2: Well, that's actually a great question because it is a huge question. So during the war, you know, the dead are buried close to where they fall. There's just not the logistical capability with the war going on and the demands of the war for the bodies to be brought home immediately. Uh, and so then once the war ends, you have over 80,000 American remains spread across 2,300 temporary cemeteries. Um,
0: temporary. Oh. Now
2: the graves registration service does really great work to kind of mark and recover these bodies. But after the war, they have a question of what to do with them. And so there's actually a huge debate among Congress and among the public about what to do with the remains. Uh, Some Americans want every single American body brought home. Others think they should all be, remain where they fell in Europe. And eventually 40% of families choose overseas internment resulting in the creation of those eight permanent cemeteries with over 31,000 burials.
0: I see. So can we assume that every American veteran buried abroad in these uh, cemeteries is a reflection of their family's choice?
2: Yes. Uh, For the most part, uh, this is a conscious choice of the family to leave their loved ones buried overseas. Mm -hmm. The one exception is that uh, at the end of the war, despite the efforts of the Graves Registration Service to identify and mark all these graves, the chaos of combat, the destruction of modern weaponry means... At the end of the war, there's over 1,600 remains that cannot be identified, and all of those are interred in the overseas cemetery, with the exception of one set of unknown remains uh, that is brought back in 1921 and buried at the tomb of the unknown soldier at Arlington National Cemetery. Oh, yes.
0: Now, you've invoked World War One several times, but my understanding is that uh, as recently as Korea and Vietnam there are service members buried abroad. So how does this unfold in ensuing wars?
2: So the World War One program is really the model that is followed in World War II. And so what you have happen is after the war, the next kin are offered these choice. At the same time the next kin are being offered the choice, uh, the Graves Registration Service is working to concentrate remains into larger cemeteries. Once the next uh response is brought in, then those remains that have been elected by the family brought home, are disinterred and sent to the United States, while the others are concentrated in these uh, permanent cemeteries. The construction of the actual, you know, marble architecture that marks the permanent cemeteries takes a little bit longer. Uh, 1934, you have all the cemeteries transferred by executive order from the War Department to the American Battle Monuments Commission, and the cemeteries and the monuments for World War I are formally dedicated in 1937. But what no one knows at the time, right, of course, is that 1937 is actually closer in time to the start of World War II than the end of World War I. <sighs> and with America entering another World War, this one that costs over 400,000 American lives, there's again the question of what to do with the dead. And, and largely they follow that World War I program. And it follows a similar process. The next candidate offered the same choice. Somewhat amazingly, it's almost the exact same percentage, 40%, that once again elect for overseas internment, resulting in the creation of 14. World War II cemeteries with over 93,000 burials. Korea and Vietnam uh, represents a bit of a shift. For Korea and Vietnam, America actually goes to uh, a new policy, what's called concurrent return. And so for Korean and Vietnam killed in action, as soon as the body is recovered and identified, uh, as soon as humanly possible, that body is sent home to the family in the United States. Uh, So what you see in Korea and Vietnam is we don't have permanent overseas cemeteries for those conflicts. The last kind of permanent overseas cemeteries that we develop uh, that are tied to specific wars are for World War II. What we do have for Korea and Vietnam is that there's still, you know, over 8,000 missing in action from Korea and over 2,500 missing in action from Vietnam. And those names are engraved on the American Battle Monuments Commission's Honolulu Memorial uh, to commemorate and memorialize their loss. Ben, thank you for
0: laying that out so clearly. And now that I've done my job kind of establishing the foundation, I'm very eager to have Pete and Ty ask questions of you uh, based on their work, again, with the Bringing Them Home project, uh, metaphorical Bringing Them Home, telling the stories of these folks who are buried abroad. Pete, what springs to mind for you?
3: Well, I think, first of all, Ben, I just wanted to thank you and ABMC because... I feel very lucky to have witnessed these cemeteries and how beautifully they're cared for. And they're just incredible places. They're spiritual places. One question that I did have is, uh, I know one of the people that I have researched a little, his mother participated in a pilgrimage to the Meuse-Argonne Cemetery. In France. uh, In France in, in 1931. And I was wondering if... If that only happened for a couple of years, or did that continue?
2: Yeah. So the Gold Star Mother tours or the Gold Star Mother pilgrimages, essentially every mother of a soldier whose body is buried overseas is offered the chance to go visit their son's grave. Um, Only moms? Only mothers. Huh. Yes. So the fathers do not go. It is specifically for mothers. Or wives? Um, uh, Yes. I believe widows are eligible as well. Hmm. And so that's offered through, I think, 31 through, I think they finish up in 33 or 34. And it's, it's interesting, they go, you know, visit the unknown soldier in Paris, uh, the tomb of the unknown soldier in Paris that is underneath the Arc de Triomphe. They're kind of feted the entire time. All expenses are paid by the United States government, and they split up from Paris and go to the individual cemeteries to visit uh, their children's grave. Now, that program is not repeated for World War II, hmm. uh, just largely because of, you know, the scale is so much different.
0: Ty, is there anything you want to know from Ben?
5: Yeah, one question was that once these families decide that they would like the remains to stay in Europe or wherever the war uh, happened, is there any way to change that um, decision and have them brought back to the United States?
0: Oh, I'm so glad you asked that because I wondered if people might change their minds,
2: Ben. Once the next of kin has made a decision, it is final. Uh, Now, there are some cases in 1949 when they're making these decisions that they decide I want my husband to be buried overseas. And then they change their mind and say back to the United States. And if the kind of cemetery hasn't been finalized yet, uh, that is allowed. But once kind of the next of kin makes that final decision and the remains are interred in the permanent cemetery, that next of kin decision is final. There is no ability for the next of kin to change their minds later. Uh, And what really what you see is not necessarily the next of kin changing mind. What you see is the next generation Mm. uh, changing their mind. Right. So if, if your father is killed in World War II and your mother elects to have him buried in Netherlands American Cemetery, and then when your mother dies and she's buried in your church plot, uh, you'll sometimes see that children would like to bring uh, the father's remains home to lie next to the mother, uh, and and that is not uh, permissible. And there's a number of reasons for that. First, um, the kind of burial program to establish these cemeteries was a, one- a one-time thing. American Battle Monuments Commission does not actually have disinterment capability internal to our organization. We don't we don't maintain that skill set. Huh. And then the other issue you have is the cemeteries are really considered works of art and they're a commemorative landscape. And so the removal of graves that would, would change the layout of the cemetery is problematic, not just for the affected grave, but for the entire cemetery and its role in honoring all of the dead there. Uh, the other issue you have occasionally is you'll have people who were World War II veterans and survived the war and die 30, 40, 50 years later and leaving their will that they want to be buried next to their comrades at Normandy American cemetery, which is, which is also not permissible. Um, These cemeteries are closed once they're dedicated, uh, you know, in 1937 for the world war one sites in 1956 to 60 for the world war two sites. Only exception to that policy is if you have a unknown remain from world war one or world war two that is discovered on the battlefield Mm -hmm. or, that is interred in our sites as an unknown and is subsequently identified by DPAA.
3: Is the land given to the United States by the host countries? Is it actually part of the United States or is it French?
2: So it is, uh, this is a question that comes up a lot as well. It's one of our myths that we have to bust all the time. Uh, The land is sovereign territory of the host country that it is in. This land is not considered American soil. It's not like an embassy. Right, it is not like that. Th- that's actually after World War One. That is an offer that's on the table from the French government, but the Commission and the American government declines it uh, for a number of reasons. Uh, one of which is it would have made emergency services very difficult uh, if you were, you know, a foreign country technically. And then there's also, you know, there's the the rumor and the occasional issue with. There was a concern that if we made it in American soil, people would try and use the cemetery as sanctuary. You'd have outlaws on the run trying to hide in the cemetery so that the local gendarme couldn't arrest them, uh, so it is it is territory of the host nation, and it is uh, leased from the host nation to the United States government for no no rent, no fees, no taxes in perpetuity.
0: What did you feel at a particular cemetery? Give me a memory that stands out, a picture in your head.
2: Yes, yeah, so, I mean I think the thing is really for all of our cemeteries, it's just such a powerful emotional experience being there, and even when you look at the pictures and understand the mission. And, you know, go online and read some of our publications or or look at, you know, the database that includes the information for all the dead. Uh, It just cannot compare to physically standing there. And the power of place in being there is incredible. You know, you have the grave plots, but you also have the memorial architecture. You have the artwork, battle maps that talk about the actual achievements of these folks. And so for me, the feeling is always that You know, the most powerful part of the cemeteries is the grave plots themselves, and they're really, you know, looking on that row upon row of white crosses and stars of David uh, set against the green grass and, and the kind of peaceful setting really conveys the scale of sacrifice of these generations. And then you combine that with the very conscious design of the memorial architecture and artwork which helps, you know, convey meaning to these deaths, right? The battle maps convey the actual achievements the, that these dead did not die in vain. And I think that's incredibly powerful. And I really wish every American could have the chance to go visit them. Uh, but we also, you know, work hard to bring these stories home, as as you all have been working to do, because uh, our sites are overseas. But, our you know, our audience is the American public, and, and most Americans will never make it to one of our sites. And, and how do we tell that story to them in the in the United States? hmm you know, part of the criterion for the choice of these cemeteries is that they're located right on the ground where the war went through, right? If you go to Normandy, I mean, you are on the top of the bluffs of Omaha beach. And in many cases, not just in Normandy, but at all of our sites. Uh, I mean, some of the men buried there didn't just figuratively die to free that land. They literally died to free that specific land. Oh. And that kind of, you know, power of places is, is an incredible uh, part of the experience of visiting the cemeteries.
0: Wow, that just gave me goosebumps. It also helps me understand why a family might have wanted their loved one buried abroad. I have to say I struggled with that when I thought about it for myself. But the notion that you'd be buried on land you helped keep free is uh, incredibly powerful. Gentlemen, thank you so much for being with us for these uh, insightful questions and equally insightful answers, Ben. Thank you.
3: Very welcome. Thanks, Ben. Ben. Thank you.
0: Military historian Benjamin Brands of the American Battle Monuments Commission discussing the U.S.'s 26 foreign veteran cemeteries. Pete and Ty Chandler of Boulder also joined to talk about the Bringing Them Home project. We spoke last May, and their work continues today, now from their home in Maine. This is Colorado Matters and a Memorial Day special from CPR News.
6: The largest source of support for Colorado Public Radio
0: comes from members across our state. I'm
5: from Denver, Aurora, Glenwood Springs, Grand
2: Junction, Ranch.
0: With your donation, you connect your city to nonprofit journalism, to inspiring stories, and you connect your community to a wide range of music that fills our daily life. Month after month, donors continue to step up. Thank you for your support. Telluride singer-songwriter Emily Scott Robinson mixes folk and country as she reflects on faith and loss. Her album, American Siren, features a song about her cousin who became an army ranger right out of high school.
4: He served in Afghanistan and he had a really complicated experience over there, as most service members do. He came back with a lot of trauma and He also was really, really proud of his service and loved the people he served with.
0: That trauma eventually led James Twist to take his own life in 2019. He was 27. More service members die by suicide than in battle. Twist's story unfolds in the track Hometown Hero. You went to
6: Afghanistan you'd see you came back to your hometown to start a new life had a couple of babies and a beautiful wife but the demons that you lived with you hid well we never saw the guns that you kept loaded in the Making lunches and kids were in their beds And in a flash we lost you to the war inside
0: Robinson wrote Hometown Hero with her cousin's wife and children in mind.
4: It's very, very hard to explain to um, three kids, five and under, how their father passed away. But they talk about him being in heaven and they talk about him a lot. There's a final line in the song. And your kids are gonna grow
6: up Asking about you, how you love someone and leave them could
4: be true. And that's something that you do learn uh, about suicide is that he loved his family and he loved his children more than anything else in the world. And that he also died in this way um, and that both things were true. And so these kids and the folks who are left behind when somebody dies by suicide have to live with these two truths. And those are truths that in this way that grief kind of expands your heart and allows you to understand that there are really wide capacities for the human heart. To hold these two truths, I think, is something that you can really only learn by loving somebody who has died in that way.
0: Emily Scott Robinson of Telluride, remembering her late cousin, Army Ranger James Twist. We spoke in fall 2021. If you or someone you care about is struggling, Call 988, the National Helpline. And that is Colorado Matters on Memorial Day. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News and KRCC.